Well, this is going to be a pretty interesting couple of talks by uh, a dear colleague of ours in Gospel Conversations called Mark Ridgway, and it's going to be on the topic of artificial intelligence. You might ask, why is Gospel Conversations interested in that topic? Well, first thing to say, it's actually a subset of the whole arena of knowledge, and that's a, that's a theme we've been playing with this year. We've uh, just had a wonderful interview with Esther Meek on the philosophy of knowledge, and we're going to keep, uh, keep exploring that further. Um, Esther took, obviously, a profound philosophical viewpoint, and all we did in that last video with, uh, with her was um, really introduce, introduce us all to her. More to come later. Um, but you might ask, why, why do we want to divert a, you know, a theology, um, faith-based, uh, philosophical um, set of podcasts into something like artificial intelligence? Probably it's not necessary for me to really address that question uh, for most people because it is one of the clouds on the horizon in today's world. Um, clearly, artificial intelligence comes with a worldview, uh, comes with an undercurrent, uh, a feeling that somehow or other this is part of an attack upon humanity. I mean, at the most concrete level, there is a real um, debate, uncertainty over whether we are in fact destroying our economy with artificial intelligence. Is this the death of jobs? I won't go into that. Um, Mark talks a little bit about it. Um, I won't go into it except to say, um, really, the debate is open. Um, I had dinner um, a couple of years ago with uh, one of London's fintech uh, investors. And so fintech is you know new technologies in the area of finance, and he was invest. He deliberately invests. He has a fund that deliberately invests in companies that are going to disrupt um, old business models and they're going to disrupt it with artificial intelligence. So of all people, you'd expect this guy to be really optimistic, um, really supportive. No, no, artificial intelligence is the way of the future. We're going to create more jobs than we're going to destroy, etc., etc., etc. Actually, it was the opposite. His view was uh, dystopian. He really feels we are cutting off our own legs and that we will never, we're destroy, wholesale destroying, destroying professions and jobs. Well, who knows? We don't really know. I mean, another one of my clients was the large mining company Rio Tinto and they introduced driverless trucks. And guess what jobs went with driverless trucks? Entry level jobs for indigenous people. So this is, a, this is a battleground, and we don't know where it's leading. But underneath the battle, underneath that battleground, that the more pragmatic part of it, which is the future of work, underneath that, there is, there is something more sinister and probably even more important, which is a battle for what, is, what it is to be uniquely human. And there is, at one end of the spectrum, um, a point of view that says we are machines and the mind is a machine. This is reductionist scientism. The mind is a machine. Um, it can be 
um, all, of its, all of its operations can be mirrored and represented on a machine. And guess what? The machine will end up doing it better than us. Um, and this idea that the mind is a machine um, is um, very, very much present in cognitive science. And, and if it's not embraced explicitly uh, by lots of people, it's certainly a threat, seems to be a threat, an assault on what does it mean for me to be really human. Well, that's why it's such an important topic. And guess what? The church has battled over this throughout its history. Um, one of the great battlegrounds for the church is what is it to be uniquely human? Now, um, that's the field that's, that Mark takes us into. Um, I think it'll be a mesmerizing um, couple of talks. We've split them in two, 30 minutes each, because the material is so dense. And I want to say a word to you about Mark and his qualifications to talk about this. Uh, the important thing to know about Mark is that he's a practitioner, not an academic. Um, he's spent 40 years in the world of IT with some very senior roles along the way. And I like that kind of um, frontline, um, hands on the tools way of looking at the world. His first talk, which, which you'll hear um, obviously after this, the first talk is really a history of computing. Now, that can sound oh, a bit dry, but it's very, very important because he lays out for us um, some of the major definitional features of what a computer is and isn't. And he tells the story of computing um, over the last 50 years and how it's reached a kind of a dead end, a kind of a cul-de-sac in its ability for more processing power. But the new undercurrent is artificial intelligence. And that is his first talk. Um, so enjoy and listen to it now. Thank you. Hello, my name's Mark Ridgway. When uh, Tony Goldsby Smith mentioned that there would be a talk on artificial intelligence as part of this series of talks on knowledge, I uh, jumped at the chance. I've spent 40 years in information technology not necessarily working in artificial intelligence, but I'm also part of the organising committee. So I asked Tony if he could extend enough faith in me, and he has been very kind enough to do so. And I am going to present to you the challenge of artificial intelligence. In the next 60 minutes or so, I want to present a, a big picture view. It's a personal view. There are many ways of telling the story. So get to and read on, but hopefully I'll be able to introduce you to the history, to the concepts, and of course, to the deep questions that this raises. In the first 30 minutes, I want to, to just introduce you to the history of, say, the last 80 years in technology and how artificial intelligence has uh, gone hand in glove with that. And then in the second 30, I just want to talk over the very deep questions that are raised as a result. And we'll explore those, but not in depth because there are so many. So the goal of today is to, uh, is a little bit different than what a Gospel of Conversations is normally. 
this is an educational session, so you'll be learning about the technology terms so people can get a handle on reading into this subject. We'll ask ourselves what intelligence might be, and of course the questions that flow from that about what humanness is. What does it mean to be human? We start with challenges, of course, and they're all quite personal. Uh, you know, the most obvious is the fear of losing one's job through automation. But you know, there's the fear of losing control, you know, the, uh, the Hollywood uh, killer robot syndrome. And there's deeper ones like the fear of losing our humanity, like uh, being upgraded as a Cyberman in Doctor Who if you're familiar with that. So we have PowerPoint slides, so if you want to follow along in the PowerPoint slides, we'll skip to the next slide and, and get going. Our story of computers starts in 1936, and you'll see a picture if you've got the PowerPoint slides, a picture of Alan Turing. Uh, you'll know him from the movie The Imitation Game, the movie about decoding the German Enigma machine. Up until about the 1940s, about mid-1940s, we had had a number of calculation engines. Uh, Babbage's machine was the most, most notable. But these were largely single-purpose machines. They were not computers in any real sense. They were just arithmetic calculators. Some were very sophisticated, but they never went beyond that. Now, Turing was a mathematician interested in the theoretical capabilities of algorithms. Algorithms you're quite familiar with. You might not be familiar with the term, but algorithm is just the process for doing something. And you'd be quite familiar with the algorithm for doing uh, long multiplication or long division. You start with the numbers, you put them in the spaces, you take the right-hand digit and multiply by the top right-hand digit, and so on. That's an algorithm. So. To do his exploration, he developed a hypothetical machine, and he called it a Turing machine, of course, and he described it in mathematical terms. But he did picture it as a machine with an infinite paper tape, and you could stamp symbols on these little, little blocks on which uh, were visible on the tape. Um, the tape could move one space to the left, one space to the right. There were rules and a status for the Turing machine. And the machine would run until the status said stop. Now that sounds peculiar or bizarre, but it led to a phenomenal invention. Uh, his mathematics went on and became very obscure. His genius was in proposing a universal Turing machine, a machine that could read the description of any other Turing machine and then read the data that went into that machine, and then simulate it. He had just invented the computer. Didn't quite realise it at the time. It would have taken until the mid-40s for these machines to start appearing, because people didn't think of actually physically making it. Turing went on to do his mathematics. He never built any machines. He went on to do his mathematics. And you've got to take note of what had happened. He had de developed a machine 
that would twist and turn and shape itself for whatever purpose you intended. Now that's something that's quite remarkable and we don't notice about computers. It took about 10 years into the mid-1940s for the penny to drop, as it were. People took notice. And in the mid-1940s, the uh, famous rocket scientist von Neumann had developed an architecture for such a machine so that it could be built. So he was a very clever chap. Not only did he build rockets and atomic bombs, but he also designed the architecture of our current modern computer. And if you look on the next slide, there is that architecture. Inputs, outputs, central processing unit. And you know what? Nothing has changed since the mid-1940s. These machines were built on digital technology. Electronics had come far enough at that stage so that we were good at building switches, electronic switches. So you either had them on or off, or in this case, noughts and ones. And that's why we have a digital machine, because it uses binary. ENIAC was the first implementation of a Turing machine to actually be physically built. It was built in 1945 in the US, but it moved quickly. By the end of the 1950s, these digital computers were actually on the market so that anyone could buy them, albeit for a big price. I call them digital algorithmic machines. They're digital because they deal in binary on and offs, and they work by processing algorithms. So soon after this development of ENIAC and other machines, uh, it was realised it was very time consuming to write the detailed algorithms in the language that could be understood by the various machines that had been developed. They'd all been developed with various technologies and various ideas, and they all required an understanding of those in order to write any algorithm that might be practical. So people decided that we obviously needed higher level programming languages. And so Fortran was invented, COBOL was invented, and we've had many since then. And what happens with these is people can write in these and each machine would have a processor, a program itself, which would read the COBOL or the Fortran and produce the machine language, which was suitable for that particular machine. And as machines uh, started to handle multiple programs, people suddenly realized that you now needed an operating system, things like Windows and Linux. Operating systems which would control the execution of programs. And pretty well, that's where we've got today. But that's not the only way of building a computer. And on the next slide, you'll see a picture of Rosenblatt. A young man in 1958 decided to take a new approach. He was not a computer scientist or a mathematician or anything else. He was a psychologist, largely. And he realized that we needed to make computers like the human brain. And we knew it that much at that time that, that computers 
digital computers did not operate like a human brain. So he decided to create what we now call an analog computer. And he called it the perceptron. Whether the perceptron operated like a human brain is a, another question. But instead of being a digital machine, it was an electromechanical machine, a learning machine. It lasted about two years before the funding for it died. It had a quick death and they were not seen until more recently. And we'll come back to that. But I just wanted to throw this in. This is not the only way to create computers. In the period 1960 through to say 2000, there were amazing advances in the work done with the von Neumann architecture. The digital algorithmic computer took over the commercial world. No question about that. We found endless uses for this machine from keeping records through to providing entertainment. Particularly as we defined very sophisticated input and output mechanisms as well. We created a new word, digitization. The mechanics are taking just about anything and encoding it into a set of binary digits, which could be transported and reconstructed anywhere else, pretty much fulfilling the Star Trek dream of the transporter, well, sort of. Then there was the year 2000 and the realisation that what was being built with all of this digital infrastructure was actually quite fragile and that there were downsides. But as we moved into the 21st century, these uh, second thoughts hung around, slowed up things for a few years, but the momentum quickly returned. It was so strong that we continually pro proceeded without stopping back and looking back. But by about 2010, it was becoming clear that this could not continue. And on the next slide, you will see why. Firstly, it became clear that the microprocessors at the heart of all these digital machines, we had made our switches so small that these machines had limits and they were being fast approached. Uh, there were heat problems initially, and they're still, they're still around. There's so many switches and so much electricity in such a tiny space that the thing just overheats extremely quickly. And of course, now we're hitting more significant problems like quantum physics problems because they're so small. And that's telling us the machines aren't going to get too much faster over the next 10 or 20 years. Just give you an example. My current laptop model is eight years old. It's an i7 chip, it was the top of the line then. If you were to buy a top of the line model now, you would get an i7 chip. Things have improved, of course they're faster, but only marginally so, and they're not worthwhile upgrading. We really have hit a wall. Secondly, we were started to ask questions that algorithms could not answer. An example, let's say you're the head of a school and you want to do a timetabling of 100 students and there are 15 subject choices and there are 20 blocks in which to fit it all. Uh, 
You don't realize it, but that's actually impossible to solve by a computer. In real time, that is. Uh, it might take you zillions of years if you had a fast enough computer. But it seems that teachers can do it very well on their own. Or I have a huge set of data and I want to pull out some meaningful things out of it. This is the big data problem. What do I do? And traditional algorithmic processing just does not work. And it all revolves around a simple problem. The von Neumann architecture has a bottleneck. And that is the CPU. So what about the future? Well, two approaches have lined up to take us forward, but we're a long way from seeing anything from either of them. First is quantum computing. Uh, and if you look at the slide, uh, you can see that monstrous massive machine on the left. That's actually protecting a few tiny little qubits inside. Qubits are like normal computer bits, they're on or off. However, in the quantum world, they can have a huge number of different states, which are invisible to us, but they're actually real. We just can't access them. And there's some very clever thinking going on as to how we can reach into this world and actually touch and influence that, that invisible world. If we ever get it working, these machines will be great at doing number crunching on a large scale. But I don't think it'll make Netflix any faster. So physicists will love them, but that's about it. Oh, and economists as well. They like to do their massive modeling, solving massive uh, linear equations. Now, the second on the, on the right-hand side in the, in the uh, slide is the return of the perceptron. It's called neural network computing. Now, that looks like a normal, sort of a modified version of... Uh, a computer board and that's what it is because it's not a real perception some it's a digital uh, uh, a digital simulation I suppose of what an analog computer would look like and these are these are learning machines based on the way the brain is structured again very hard to say where this will take us uh, and they're still fairly new and don't expect to see them in the local Harvey Norman electronics store. So we, so we appear to be coming to the end of an era, uncertain future ahead. But let's look back at the history of artificial intelligence and how it's paralleled the rise of the computers. And the first thing I'll say is that there is no definition of what artificial intelligence is, mostly because there's no definition of intelligence and we'll come back. We'll come back to this. I'm going to introduce you, introduce you to two perspectives that have emerged in artificial intelligence. So on the next slide, you'll see the famous eye of the HAL 9000. And I'll play you a little audio clip. Open the pod bay doors, HAL. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. 
I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Yes, the famous HAL 9000 from the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. HAL is a sentient computer. It's so human that it is suffering from paranoia and has been killing all of the people on the spacecraft, which is why Dave is uh, in a lot of trouble. This view of artificial intelligence is driven by a desire to understand the human condition and decompose it. Having understood it, it can then decompose and then decompose it, it can then recreate it. And in recreating it, eliminate all of the human foibles. It can make human beings better. This is the most popular view of artificial intelligence. And of course, there's a lot of fear associated with it because if we get it wrong in fixing humanity uh, we'll really come unstuck and this is not new this is a resetting of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein which was written back in the 19th century the fear that great advances in science will backfire and come back to haunt us but on the next slide we have a different perspective here's a picture of the infamous USS Vincennes on July the 3rd, 1988, it uh, shot down Iranian Air Flight 655, killing 290 people. And it did so because of basically human error. Which raises the question, are some problems becoming, in the modern world, becoming too big, too complex for a single person or even a small entity to handle? with all of the information at hand today, has making decisions gone beyond the power of a human intellect to handle? Now we think about this as human decision-making versus machine decision-making, and we are very comfortable with human decision-making. And I think that's the wrong approach. Perhaps we should be thinking of a cooperative venture. If artificial intelligence had been on board the USS Vincennes, there would be 290 more people alive today. There is this idea that we can be more human with support from the tools that artificial intelligence could bring. It's about enhancing what it is to be human. Uh, it's, it's a natural extension of industrialization. With industrialization, we built machines to lift heavy weights. Yes, people can lift heavy weights, and several people can lift even more weights. But once it gets to a very, very heavy weight, we need machines. And that's why some people are considering artificial intelligence as a way of helping humanity solve difficult problems. If you take the example of let's say, computer-controlled cars, a current issue. Most people don't trust computer-controlled cars, and they'll quickly point to the accidents that have occurred. But I drive as a volunteer driver 
taking uh, people between hospitals and airports. So I'm on the road a fair bit. And I certainly don't trust people driving cars. So let's skip over to the next slide and, and dig a bit deeper into the history of artificial intelligence. So with the rise of computers in the 1940s and 50s came this great anticipation that this breakthrough of, of digital algorithmic computers would lead the way to being able to pursue the idea of replicating human thinking. Yeah, so in the years about between 1955 and 1974, I think was the cutoff, it was the scientists who pursued a range of exciting projects funded by governments and military agencies. It was the Cold War and governments were quite happy to spend money to investigate and explore areas which could help your side overtake the other. They targeted a couple of areas in particular. The first was natural language, language in, in interpretation. Basically trying to develop programs that could maintain a conversation. Uh, some people worked at general problem solvers. Uh, that, that is programs that would take a mathematical proposition and solve it logically without needing human beings to intervene. And there was robotics was very popular. You know, the military robot was, was a, a dream at that stage. And but very limited because computers in those days were quite large. And so it wasn't very practical, but the idea was there and a lot of money was spent. But by 1974, uh, things had not gone too well. The programs could do very simplistic things, but they were pretty pathetic, and they showed no promise of any improvement. Yeah, slow computers were blamed, but there clearly was an underestimation of the complexities of the challenge. And then there were the wild claims of conscious computers within 20 years, none of which happened. The philosopher Hubert Dreyfus wrote this, there must be a reason why these intelligent men almost unanimously minimize or fail to recognize their difficulties and continue dogmatically to assert their faith in progress. By 1974, detente had taken over, the Cold War fears were starting to reduce and the funding dried up overnight. So the military and governments pulled all the cash and we had what we first where we now call the first AI winter very little happened between the mid 70s and 1980 but on the next slide as we move into the period 1980 through to the early 1990s money started flowing again for artificial intelligence research but this time it wasn't the governments it were corporate businesses interested in the potential of expert systems. So at the start of the 1980s, most corporates had invested heavily into computers and automation. And they were planning large numbers of computer systems. And the number of those systems was growing exponentially. And with the maintenance cost of those systems being around about ooh, 40 or 50% per 
per annum of the original development costs, uh, corporate executives were worried. Computer programmers were scarce and expensive. Artificial intelligence was seen as a possible solution. The, the idea emerged with IBM leading the way that we could build, if we could get the owners and users of these computer systems to define the rules for a system in a specialized database, which they called a repository, a metadatabase, if you, metadata database, if you want to use the fancy term. Uh, we could then build artificial intelligence engines to read the rules and create systems without any programmers. In Australia, lots of large corporations bought into the vision, uh, and I think several billion dollars was uh, spent just in Australia on this idea. Westpac was the biggest inventor with its uh, CS90 project, if you want to go and look up some history. But whilst huge sums of money were being poured into these repositories, it became clear by the end of the 80s that these artificial intelligence engines weren't going to produce the code so easily. They did exist, but they weren't very good. More so, businesses found that writing out the rules for how they actually operated, well, you needed a programmer to do it. And businesses couldn't answer a lot of the questions that needed answering in order to create the rules. And everyone just threw their hands up in the air and walked away. The real killer, of course, was the book by Ed Yordan, The Decline and Fall of the American Programmer. He simply pointed out that the Indian government had been training zillions of very cheap programmers. And it was going to change the way we built and programmed computers. There was another AI winter, but it was a short one in 1995 and onwards into 2010, I'd say, we saw huge growth in computer power. Moore's law became part of our vocabulary. That is, PC power doubles every 18 months to two years. The personal computer became available to huge numbers of people, making everyone an expert on computers. And this limitation of computer power was no, really no longer an excuse for not creating useful AI. But the first 35 years of AI had left a sour taste in just about all the investors' mouths. So you weren't going to get any money for artificial intelligence research. So it went underground. And research began on a whole lot of unrelated ideas that were certainly not labelled artificial intelligence, but were. And some of them have created tremendous blessings. The obvious one is the web search engine. Who could imagine a computer program that reads everything on the internet, everything in minute detail, and then have some uninformed person come along and ask stupid questions and actually get meaningful results? We take it for granted, but it's absolutely amazing. Uh, IBM's Deep Blue finally beats Kasparov at chess consistently, unless that's old news. Uh, Deep Blue was not about trying to replicate human intelligence. It was about game theory and how you can build computers to play games. 
in the field of robotics, there were huge numbers of lots of little minor discoveries, but they're all added up, put together, until we, you know, we now have automation at an extreme level. Think of uh, Amazon's fully automated warehousing system. No people. And say speech recognition. I know we laugh at it, but let's face it, every Windows computer can actually listen to your voice and type it out relatively accurately. This is massive. And since 2011, uh, AI has become part of the mainstream. You turn to the slide there where you see the uh, doctor operating on a patient with obviously what is a machine. The focus of attention is with those difficult problems that traditional computers couldn't handle. Uh, think of the big data problem. You've got a huge set of data of, of all sorts of things wrapped in and around each other and you want to know what relationships inside the data exists. Can't do that with a normal computer. But with the big data algorithms that have been developed, we can actually start pulling out all sorts of things that you just can't normally see. Things, for example, uh, you might want to have a, you, know, you might see the relationship between the average income of a region and the need for disability car park spaces at the library. Very interesting and useful information. You wouldn't know it's there, but it is. Or big learning, as they call it. Let's say you run well and you go to your local GP. You don't have any idea what it is. So he sends you off to specialist number one. And you spend a lot of money and a lot of time with specialist number one, and he gives up. So you come back again and we'll say, well, let's try specialist number two. And we, some different approach to the problem and on and on it goes. Uh, a lot of people have been in this space. Just imagine an artificial intelligence engine that could pull out the understanding of all the specialists and try and provide some more general guidance for you so that you can be put to the right specialist at the first time. Not quite here yet. It's coming and it's in the future. And boy, I know people who are just hanging out for that.